Internet. I'm John Bailey, and in this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've only got two new releases, Tyler Perry's The Medea Family Funeral, Tyler Perry's final entry in the franchise for now, and the latest from Neil Jordan, the psychological thriller Greta. Let's get started. You're about to get shot. This is a church. If you come up here with that bull, I don't mind busting you in your face, so that's Jesus to forgive me. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm a real thug. I'm an O-G-M-A-D-E-A. Are you ready for a miracle? We're sorry. Apparently, he was taking some sort of stimulant. We're having some trouble with him. Keeping it down. I want to know if he's an organ donor. I think a problem people have with criticism, with spe- specifically uh, film criticism, is that critics will review movies within their own mindset. They don't. They will omit the audience intended for the movie from their criticism. And if you've been following the podcast, I've been trying to. Um, Avoid that and overcome that specifically because I don't want to make it sound like I'm insulting the audience of the movie, the one that does enjoy the movie itself. I just want to criticize – I'm here to tell you my thoughts on it. And if I'm not a part of that audience, please take that into account because clearly the movie was not made for me. That's why I always preface um, my criticisms of, say – conservative leaning uh movies movies with a conservative uh theming or uh belief system behind it uh christian movies and for tyler perry and medea if you if you've heard my uh other two my only other two medea reviews have been the halloween specials which are honestly some of the worst movies i've ever seen just because and not even just because they're Medea, just because they're so lazily put together and barely functioning as movies. This is not the case for uh, a family funeral, Medea's family funeral, because um, the thing here is it's it, it is much more like his other uh, Medea movies in that regard. Because bo- the Halloween specials are essentially like let's make this over the. It feels like something that's like make make this over the course of a weekend. Who cares? And this felt more like he wanted to put some finality on it, and he wanted to just make what he's usually made, not just something that he was was sleepwalking his way through. Here, the uh, premise is um, Medea, who's essentially a cursory to the entire plot. Uh, she like there's no reason for her to even exist, as far as I can tell. Um, and I don't know if these are uh, previous characters, but basically there's this family suffering from um, its own internal drama from affairs to just not knowing what you want, what they want out of life. But, um, you know, in the midst of all of this, um, their uh, father dies suddenly and under more comedic circumstances that it, like they're trying to play it up for laughs. But, yeah, it's. But it's ultimately, uh, yeah, they, their dad dies on while everyone's gathered for their parents' anniversary, and so the anniversary turns into a, a funeral arrangement, and so a lot of there's a lot of the whole melodrama, people trying to figure out what's really going on, 
and Medea is sort of like uh, I guess an in-law or maybe like a, a cousin or something or so, there's some relation there and then uh, Tyler Perry's own character the one he plays without makeup Brian is there as well uh, and then there's some new I don't know if this is I think this is a new character but there's an uncle who lost his legs and uh speaks with a voice box um having had a tracheotomy and I don't I I I don't think we needed him it's just another old horny character which we already had one of so I don't know if this is a pre-existing character that he's bringing back or if this was his idea of adding a new character for the last entry. I don't know. But uh, the funeral goes off and it's and it's more and it ends up being a parody of sort of like how extensive uh, black church services are and uh it all ends with the whole with the revelations of the family going on, and then have and then the denouement is them having to deal with all of this knowledge now that it's out in the open, and it's a little it's a little less preachy than Tyler Perry will get with Medea. There's definitely an emphasis on you know God fearing, church going, and whatnot, but it's not as prevalent. This time around that I've noted that whereas in so many other of his movies, that is almost like a sub a subsequent theme. It's almost it's he's almost making Christian movies in that regard. But uh, here it's not as big of a deal. And it's but at the same time, like Medea doesn't feel relevant to the plot. Medea feels like an outsider who's just there along for the ride to comment on it and make jokes I think that's my biggest issue with the movie is that it doesn't feel like, and I don't know if these once again uh, these characters could have been long-standing within the Medea franchise, and then and so them building up to this moment could have been something for people who've been watching these films since the beginning uh, would notice. But I highly doubt that. I, this feels like something like this is Medea, Medea's family so extensive. This is just one branch on her frame off of her family tree and she's just there for there for the ride she's just there because we need Medea here um but if you take Medea out of this this is basically an episode of his uh soap opera the haves and the haves nots like there is everything everything that's the main problem with uh Tyler Perry's uh Medea stuff is that the people around Medea, the 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 plot that that centers on the people on the supporting characters, is never that good. It's always it's always like reliant on stereotypes and generic tropes of melodrama, and it feels like an episode of a soap opera, a a boring soap opera. Because at least some soap operas will go like absolutely bug nuts. But here it's just generic and doesn't feel like it's going anywhere that you haven't seen a million times before without adding anything new to it. I also think it was kind of weird that all the other male protagonists uh, the, in, the, in the movie, all the other male characters 
in the family are like almost are so super buff that they feel like they're all, and then that and they often take their shirt. There's a couple of ones where the guys are taking their shirts off, and it feels like these dudes are auditioning to be like in superhero movies or almost like Chippendale dancers or male strippers. It's so weird. Um, but yeah, it this at the same point I've also seen um, there was a. When I worked at Hollywood Video back in the day, there was there was a collection that we had of his theater productions that were recorded uh, three camera style and released, like some uh, productions will do. And uh, this also feels like one of those. It feels like he hasn't ever really advanced beyond his days working in theater. Because it definitely feels like it, it def- has pacing and the writing style and even some of the scene setups that feel like it was written for the stage first and then adapted for the screen. And I know the same can't be said of all of his stuff, but this one specifically felt like it was maybe an unproduced scri- uh, stage theater uh, script or I don't know what. Maybe this was based on an old uh, the- theater script. Uh, that he did. Maybe this was a production he did for theater first, and then here he is adapting it for film to finally put an end cap on Medea, since he's he's at the point now where he's openly admitted he's almost the same age Medea is, Medea the character is, and he feels like at that point he is it's time to retire her. Uh, But yeah, ultimately uh, I think just Tyler Perry's sense of humor doesn't really work for me. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot of misogyny. There's, there's just an inherent string of transphobic jokes uh, labeled at Medea because it's very clearly Tyler Perry in drag, and it's, it's ultimately just reliant on a lot of. And at the same point, the tasteless jokes are kind of the basis. Like. You don't get mad at South Park for making tasteless jokes. I mean, you do, you can. A lot of people have been. But when the point is that the joke is tasteless, that the character in the, making the joke is is tactless and tasteless, then that make then that people are more willing to accept that rather than if somebody who isn't known for making tasteless jokes makes one. The Medea franchise has always kind of been rooted in these jokes, and it's just never been a style that's worked for me, but I don't begrudge it because Tyler Perry has found out that that's what people enjoy about it. So, at the same point, there are some good jokes. There's, like, like of the bits about the funeral itself, the extensive length of it, the way they played up the fact that it went on forever, uh... That, that kind of got to me. There was a couple of um, a couple of the physical humor uh, slapstick did get to me because just because it was so quickly paced and it knew how to do and knew how to play uh, slapstick. But ultimately, yeah, this isn't this isn't all this isn't all that great of a movie. And I've by the same point, I've never been a fan of Tyler Perry's Medea or any of his creative output. To be honest, I think as a writer, he just never wrote content that I enjoyed. And I hope this is a fitting end for um, the fans, and I hope they got what they wanted out of this. But I think Tyler Perry's right in that this fan, like he was running on fumes with the Halloween movies, so I think it's time to end a traditional Medea style film and then be done with it. 
so he can focus on making the content that he actually wants to make rather than continually propping up a character to keep keep things go to keep it going so uh we'll see maybe he'll do a, a reboot with a new um maybe maybe it'll be a woman this time so it won't be as transphobic but i don't know i would not like once again hollywood is the the lows that hollywood and the film industry will sink to keep a franchise going and keep the money rolling it never disappoints but we'll see since tyler perry owns the character he has ultimate control over it we'll see what happens Nothing may happen until he dies and his estate decides, we need the Medea money back. Give, make, reboot Medea. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens now. Everyone needs a friend. But we're more than friends. We're connected. There's something you need to know about Greta. What? Are you insane? Just try to get rid of Greta. Since there are only two, I neglected to mention that Medea was my unpopped kernel of the week, but that's mostly by default since there are only two new releases this weekend. Uh, But my other, uh, but my favorite uh, pick of the week is uh, Greta. And even then, it's, it's by default just because this was the better of the two. But it's not something I, like, it's not going to be end up on my best of the year list either. So it's just like, this is my pick of the week, mainly because this was kind of a weak week. A weak week. Uh, but yeah, this was a, le- a, this is, this week's releases were just kind of middling, ultimately. Uh, I'm not all that familiar with Neil Jordan. I know he wrote The Crying Game, and he's, I, th- I feel like I know the name through theater, Uh but I'm not familiar with him, like, directly. I also know he wrote uh, Breakfast on Pluto with Lily Tomlin. I think Lily Tomlin. Let me see. Let me be sure on that. Here, hold on. Let me pull up the guy's wiki so I can get a better idea of who I'm talking about. Irish film director, novelist, short story writer. Okay, so he hasn't been in theater. It's all been uh, theater. I know he did. he's been doing TV mostly now. Um, I don't know where I got. Th- I think maybe I'm I th- Neil Simon is the playwright, so maybe I was thinking of that and confusing the two. But yeah, um, he's been he's worked mainly in film, uh, with most of his stuff being uh, the biggest one being The Crying Game. Uh, he's also did he also did Michael Collins, um, like I mentioned, Breakfast on Pluto. Uh, Killian Murphy. Now, what am I thinking of that had Lily Tomlin? Because this is Killian Murphy in it. Hold on. There was a breakfast on something that had, like, Lily Tomlin in it. Not to to look into that, though, because that's apparently uh, Killian Murphy playing a trans character, trans woman. Um, I know that's a hot-button issue uh, of cis actors playing trans roles but that one got was in actually neil jordan has been one of the only directors to really focus on 
trans characters and making them see some form of protagonist. Like, that one uh, was a trans character as a protagonist. I heard Huckabees. Huh. Maybe I just thought maybe I just thought it was Lily Tomlin because it looked like because Killian Drag looks like Lily Tomlin a bit. Um But yeah, Crime Game featured a trans character. Uh Breakfast on Pluto features a trans character. So I mean Neil Jordan doesn't has never shied away from the existence of trans uh character trans people in uh in a, in you know in the world. But I would have to talk to, you know, uh, other trans people to find out what their thoughts are on his... Because I know the crying game was infamous for sort of perpetuating the idea of the trap. Because that was the big twist back then. Was the crying game revealed that this love interest was uh, a trans woman. And I don't know how it played out. I just know it's been done to... Like, that was... The Crying Game was what was being parodied in Ace Ventura, which is wildly transphobic in retrospect. But I haven't seen The Crying Game in context of the movie, so I don't know how that plays out, if it's being transphobic, or if it's just acknowledging that, hey, trans women exist. But yeah, Breakfast on Pluto was about a trans character. The Brave One, which was... uh, I think a revenge thriller, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't it a revenge thriller with uh, Jodie Foster? Yeah, it's, it was sort of like uh, Jodie Foster's... Um, what's that series called with uh, Charles Bronson? Death Wish. Not Death Wish. Yeah, Death Wish. Sort of like that revenge fantasy. Um Oh, he did a Byzantium, the vampire film with uh, Saoirse Ronan and Gemma Arterton back in 2012. I think I've heard good things about that. So, yeah, this is a guy who is whose longstanding films have w- ranged wildly from Michael Collins, which was sort of like that beginning of the uh, Celtic. No, that was right after the success of Braveheart was Michael Collins. Uh, which was a biopic about the Irish uh, revolution, revolutionary who died in the Irish Civil War. That was the one with uh, Liam Neeson. So that was like right in the height of sort of the Irish Celtic uh, in, uh, in, uh, surge in films. Um, not familiar with a bunch of this stuff. Butcher Boy, The Good Thief, uh, The Actors, but... Uh, but yeah, I know Breakfast on Pluto. I didn't realize that was Killian and Drag. Uh, not Drag. Uh, it's, I mean, kind of. He is in Drag, but he's playing a trans character. Uh, Undine. Okay, so yeah, he's he, he deals a lot with Ireland, and uh, and and has a passion for his homeland. That, but he's also done like film and TV. He did the Borgias uh, most recently for Showtime. And, uh, and so this is his latest, anyway, this is his latest movie, uh, which is, which is mostly just a, just basically sort of a single white female style psychological thriller where, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz is a young girl in, uh, Manhattan living with her 
living with i'm guessing with her best friend though there are tone there are undertones of like maybe they're in a relationship but it never fully acknowledged they acknowledge that you know they're that they they have no qualms with acknowledging lesbian characters lesbian women exist in uh in the in in this in this movie cuz one of the characters is a lesbian but Chloe Grace Moretz and her roommate are not uh they they're underpinnings of it that like you feel like it could have gone where they were in a lesbian relationship but ne- but it's but for the most part it's just a friendship uh anyway Chloe Grace Moretz uh is kind of the driving force of this movie along with Isabelle Huppert the uh French actress who was who I know mainly uh from being in the last uh Oh, he was also in I Heart Huckabee. She was also in I Heart Huckabees with Lily Tomlin. Huh. Huh with that. Uh but she I I remember seeing being being praised for her work in uh the last large I think Large Venture movie. Uh Ava. Oh, she was also in Isle of Dogs for uh for uh, from Wes Anderson uh who was was it was it Lars Venture Paul Verhoeven not Lars Venture she was she was in the she was in Paul Verhoeven's movie uh in 2016 she was the star of that and it gained a lot of notoriety and that's kind of where she kind of gained sort got kind of captured my attention cuz otherwise okay she was in the nun like I wouldn't have remembered her from the nu- where where did I see it? I lost it. There's it. Oh no, 2013's The Nun, which is a French film. I was gonna say she was in The Nun. That piece of crap. Uh, nah, she's mainly a French actress in 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 French productions. But uh, I th- I think L kind of, like I Heart Huckabee's didn't bring her over. Uh, Disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. Uh, didn't really bring her over. Uh, I think L was the one where she gained more um, uh, notoriety on on camera uh, because people were follow Paul Verhoeven, and so when they see his new thing making the rounds, they're like, "Ooh, she's good in that," and so she kind of took that, and, and so that kind of helped elevate her. And now she's starring in her own American production. Uh, alongside Chloe Grace Moretz, directed by Neil Jordan, and yeah, base, the basic premise here is um, Chloe Grace Moretz is dealing with the loss of her mother, who she was, whom she was very close to, and in and on and on a trip from the sub while, while traveling on the subway, she finds an abandoned purse, and she finds it. Um, it, it it the name of the woman who uh left who lost it uh Greta Hideg and she goes to return the purse and they have this sort of like they spark a little friendship that uh she finds without a problem and and uh the roommate calls Chloe Grace Moretz out on kind of almost get using Greta as a surrogate mom because she misses her own and it is kind of that relationship. Greta is fawning on Chloe like Chloe's her daughter, and uh, and Chloe is sort of relying on having the same sort of kinship that she would with a mom. 
And uh, eventually it is revealed, and the trailer reveals it too, that uh, Greta has done this, has has left the bags out on the subway all the time for multiple women. And she is, and for some stupid reason, she has decided to label them with all the women who brought them back, I guess for sentimental reasons. Uh, But once Chloe finds this out, um, she... She says, no, I'm out. I'm out. This is obviously crazy. I I want none of this. And uh, unfortunately, Greta then starts to stalk her and uh, harass her at work and uh, call her endlessly on her cell and house phone. And eventually, uh, you know, apparently she's doing it just enough where she doesn't get in trouble for it and the courts won't have to. And the court's uh, bureaucracy won't won't be able to stop her in time because they have to go through all the processes in order to file a, a, a restraining order. But uh, like you could like they're told it could take months uh, before um, before 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 you know any sort of court proceedings could take place. And meanwhile. And meanwhile, Chloe just wants to find a way out, and Greta decides to uh re- to finally do what she did with all the other uh, girls that 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 came over and decided that she was crazy and didn't want anything to do with her, and basic and kidnaps her and uh and keeps her locked up, and so the the the. Last act of the movie is dealing with uh, Chloe with trying to with her friend with her friend and her father, whom uh, she's had a strained relationship because he works a lot and also kind of moved on from their from their mom's death, and they've kind of grown apart because of it. And he wants to, and he wants to try and rebuild their relationship, but uh, once the two of them figure out that that. Uh, that that Chloe's been missing, then he hires a PI to try and to try and find uh to try and to to look into where uh she could be. And unfortunately Greta outsmarts you know, out you know kind of take kind of keeps is able to keep uh uh Chloe hidden, uh her character Francis. Uh Francis hidden and uh and it's only until uh, that Greta decides to move on to the next vict- her next victim, that that we f- that that everything is finally kind of resolved. So, um, I've got issues with this movie. I've got mixed feelings about it. Um, I do like the idea, I do like the, the genre it's going for, psychological thriller a la single white female, uh, fatal attraction, things of that nature where you, where you think you're getting into something and it just turns out the person is absolutely out of their mind and unstable. Um, and Chloe is amazing, as usual, she's phenomenal. Uh, Isabelle Huppert is is uh, is stunning and just absolutely pl- is able to play up the sort of just unhinged nature of this character. Everyone else is kind of underwritten though, like the friend character, 
they don't play her up as a love interest for for Francis. Like they're just friends. But it's um, Micah Monroe, who was the star of It Follows, and was also with Chloe in um, The Fifth Wave. And she's a fine actress, but at the same point, they don't give her much to do until the until towards the end. Like it's it's sadly like so much of the focus is just on uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and Isabelle Huppert that the supporting character, like if if Michael Monroe was a third, it was the third part of this story where she was just as prominent. And had just as much going on as the other as the other two, then maybe we might have something more here. But other, what everyone else is kind of like, uh, just kind of there out of just um, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, necessity. They're just there out of necessity for the most part. And I feel like if Michael Monroe's character uh, Erica was written and written to be much more prominent within much more much more prevalent in all of this and or maybe it was maybe with another actress i'm not sure but the something if she played much more of a role than she does then maybe maybe there'd be something here like maybe instead of her being sort of a uh you know a stereotypical like young uh Yo- like she does, she does yoga and col- and there's a reference to colonics and she's pseudo spiritual I guess but she's also like she's down to par- she likes to go to parties and have fun she's sort of like what you would think of of like a a sort of um, upper middle class upper class sort of uh, Manhattanite or a Hollywood chick something like that that's if she was more than that if she was like like if she and Chloe had much more of a kinship, a friendship that you saw, whereas whereas it more more often than not, it feels like they're just roommates, not like close knit friends. Uh, so maybe if there was a uh, much more of that kinship, like they were already good friends, we saw that they were really close friends. Because otherwise, they're just arguing about how because based and I mean uh, Chloe's. Uh, wardrobe here feels some like something out of the 80s it feels very retro and very you know downplayed whereas um erica's is much more modern much more much more uh hip much more uh you know like she's often in yoga pants and she wears like really really nice dresses and outfits and whereas uh francis chloe's character wears more of you know older styled stuff stuff that looked like hand-me-downs and probably was hand-me-downs from her mom and if there was that if there wasn't that sort of dichotomy of like the opposites attracting where the where where francis was much more of an old soul so to speak and erica was much much more of a modern hip chic character maybe if they were both like super close friends because a lot of the times they're spent arguing about Erica telling Francis to come out and have fun, do the, do the colonic with her, and doing yoga poses while Francis rides around on her bike in the apartment. Uh, it's very it's very weird their friendship. It's not very well written, honestly. If I, I feel like if they were if they were both sort of like like if there wasn't that sort of 
obvious dichotomy between them, if they weren't almost like an odd couple of sorts, then maybe there could have been something there. But otherwise, I, I feel like that's sort of a waste. And then the dad character is hardly in the movie. And there's just not much of a real supporting cast of characters. They're all kind of there out of necessity because you can't have an unpopulated world with no real, uh, with no other characters in it. But the main thrust of the movie, Chloe Grace Moretz and Isabelle Huppert, they're the reason to see this. They're the, they're, they're wild and absolutely insane uh, relationship turned, you know, ma- turned just absolute to to just madness is why you want to see this movie. It's why, it's why you should see this movie because they're the, because they play up this, this style perfectly. But I think if, I think that what's kept me from, like I enjoyed it, but I know there was something missing. And the more I think about it there, I think it's just that the supporting cast around them was underwritten and underutilized. And maybe if there was more to it, then maybe they would have been even better. But I know this is getting middling reviews. And I think people, because people were paying more attention to what is wrong with it than whereas I got, what I got out of it was Chloe and Isabelle Huppert are amazing in this. But yeah, suffice to say, this movie is good. It could have been way better. And. If you want a good psychological thriller, this is this will fit the bill. But you know, I'm not going to tell you it's the best one in ages because it's a good entry. It's not going to blow you out of the water. But at the same point, if you want something in that same vein as like single white female, then this will fit the bill for you. And I think it's I think it's still an, a well put together movie, even if part of the uh, even if the supporting cast could have done with some more. Uh, it's definitely unstable. I'll say that it should have. Where at most, so much focus was placed on the main characters that it neglected the surrounding characters, and I feel like that's the main problem with it. All right, uh, that does it for the reviews this week. Nice and nice, short and sweet. So when we come back, we're going to talk about how and when to end your franchise. Did you know Ash's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. biggest problem with trying to end a series in Hollywood is that when you're under the boot heel of capitalism, there is no end. There is only ever onward and upward growth. And if there's the only way to end something is for it to fail. And even then, as long, it has to fail spectacularly. Because even if it fails slightly, if it can gain enough momentum, 
and there's enough connections there, then there's a there's a way to keep it alive. There are obviously loopholes that even failure can't keep something from can can't keep something from continuing. But that's and yeah, that's the biggest problem that we have is that because under this model of capitalism where everything has to continually grow until it's absolutely unsustainable and will collapse, then the series will go on and then a series will go on in perpetuity as long as it makes money. I mean, sometimes if it doesn't make money, if it just makes enough, all it has to do is make enough money to warrant it. So, I mean, that's why we're getting 47 meters down to this weekend. Cause just enough people saw that piece of crap to warrant a sequel. Oy. So yeah, uh, how do you end a series outside of that? I mean, barring the fact that you can't officially end it unless you know unless you have co- complete control over it. If the studio has control over it, it's never going to end. It's going to continue going onward until it stops making money. But as far as your own creative point goes if you're the creator of something and you want it to end ideally what you want ideally comes it may come from fatigue like you're like they're being tasked with continually making this this franchise go onward and onward and onward just because it makes money and they'll get tired and they want to end it you know uh tyler perry's been uh, tyler perry was doing medea for i want to say maybe 30 years or more so he's been doing the character for for longer than for longer than he had any right to be honestly like there like i like there the fact that medea blew up like it did is is kind of a kind of a showcase to just how building in your audience outside of how, you know building your own core group of audience and then transferring the media transferring mediums from theater to film could do can help can be a good move cuz that's basically how he started he started making uh, stage plays, and then he managed to gain enough clout there and to translate those scripts that he wrote for stage into films, and he be- and he started building a film studio around that. And I understand that he- I understand that Medea was a big part of that because Medea was the standout character from all of his productions. But at the same point, he's been playing Medea for 30-some-odd years, and he's almost as old, if not as old, as Medea. Like, imagine him being older than Medea the character is and still playing Medea. That would, yeah, I, I, can, I can imagine him, that driving him crazy. Because you don't want to be the same age as the characters you're portraying if, you, if they're in their 70s. So... I get what, so creator fatigue is a big point, but at this, but the real kicker is you need to have a definitive end. Things like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, um, you know, something based on like a franchise series of books or comics or something will have not maybe not comics, but maybe like a graphic novel, something with a something where the series has a definitive end, and you're working to that. Maybe the franchise won't, but if you want to end something, have an end point in mind and work towards that. Make it a limited series. Those can usually end and then they'll continue the franchise through spinoffs and whatnot. Uh, 
other than that, like the only time I've ever seen a franchise just abruptly end is if a main star or a creator passed away. Like as soon as Anton Yelchin uh, had his tragic accident, there was no word on the next Star Trek film, next Abrams, the next Abrams era Star Trek film. There was they all momentum for that stopped because they didn't want to continue onward without Yelchin, even though Yelchin was more of a supporting character in it. But they felt it was it was in poor taste to try and recast him or work around him. All momentum for that franchise just stopped. So I'm trying to think of another one recently where the create because I mean if a if a studio has creative control over it, the creator dying doesn't matter. Like Ian Mc Ian McKellen. <laughs> no, um what's his name? Who guy created James Bond, uh, Ian. Why can't I remember the guy who created James Bond? I watched those movies with my dad. They come out on his like they come out around his birthday for God's sake. Um, James Bond, Ian, Ian something, Ian Fleming. Okay, yeah, Ian Fleming. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. So yeah, Ian Fleming's been dead for decades, almost. I mean, a couple decades from now, he'll be of dead a full cent. Oh, no, when did he die? When did Fleming die? 64. So we've got a ways. But it's basically been half a century since Fleming's dead and Bond is still going. So, you know, just because a creator dies, if a studio has creative control over the character, it will keep going. You know, Tolkien's been dead for centuries and yet they don't, that uh, they managed to keep a second franchise going out of his characters. Uh, and, they're, and they're hoping to try and do another series on Amazon. So the creator's death isn't always a definitive end. If, you know, like I mentioned, Tyler Perry could die and then his estate would be like, let's reboot Medea, get that money back. Because your family is, is tactless, let's be real. Unless, you're, unless the person in charge of your estate has has an is is actually willing to follow your following your example then i mean the reason we got so many bad dr seuss movies was because his wife sold him out his wife sold him out to get money and that's what your family does when you die if you if you are a gold mine your your family sold you out to the to the highest bidder and but yeah but, but at the same point yeah, there are times where, like, they didn't try to reboot Ernest in the 90s when, uh, what's his name died? Uh, Voice of Slinky Dog 2. Um, Vern. No, Vern's the character. Vern! Uh, Jim Varney. Yeah, when Jim Varney died, they didn't try to reboot the. Ernest franchise with a different character because that was his character. Without him, there is no there is no Ernest. So you don't recast Ernest because people would know because that would have been terrible um, PR for you because you would be to all the fans of him who mourn his loss. All you'd be doing was saying, "We need that money." So Jim Varney's gone. Let's keep it going. You know some. Things like that are good, you know, are the the star dying is usually 
assign unless it's like a unless you find a way to repurpose the character with a new actor if it's someone who is tied directly to that to that actor when they die then your best bet is to end it or reboot it with somebody new because that because people will automatically connect that character with that actor and seeing that unless they were replaced before they died you don't want to see them replaced after they died because that is absolutely tasteless not that hollywood isn't known for its tastelessness but at the same point some you know thankfully some studios aren't as aren't that stupid uh but the thing that people all the thing that the problem with having a more capitalist mindset where things always have to keep growing and getting bigger and going upward is that all things do have to come to an end actors die directors die Ideas may not die, and sometimes, and if you've got good creators to keep it going, they can. That's why we've got mainstays like Marvel and DC Comics, and you know, stories being written uh, in the same franchises, and franchises being able to be kept alive long enough, even though the creators are long dead. Things do come to an. Eventually, things will have to come to an end. Something will happen where that thing will have to end it will have to end be it outside force or just creatively it loses momentum fatigue is like that's the thing franchise fatigue is a real thing by by building your your money on on simply the franchise model of always having a main like that's the thing back in the day they would have fran they would have franchises but there was a mix of new of creator driven ideas and then franchise would build off of those ideas like that's the thing alien the franchise was built off of ridley scott making and making a successful and really well made uh sci-fi horror movie the terminator franchise was built on an independently funded i think or like basically james cameron in his early, early days, way before he was not making uh, breaking box office records, making a movie about a robot from the future killing, coming back to kill somebody. Franchise the franchises we have now were based off of ideas that people had, and they were creator driven content, creator driven ideas. We're not getting the new ones as much. We've got, like, The Kingsman. That's been building its own franchise. In fact, we're going to get another entry this year. Um, but how many new IPs can you name? How many new... Outside of maybe kids' movies, like The Lego Movie as a franchise. Uh, Despicable Me is a franchise, and it's the backbone of Illumination. Um, yeah, I, Ice Age... Was was relatively recently. Like outside of like maybe kids movies, I can't think of a brand new uh, franchise IP that wasn't either ba- that was that was creator driven from that was a wholly original through a screenwriter and not based off of a book series or based off of a comic or based off of something else. It was its own entity. 
kids movies, I think, is the only place that really allows for that to build. Like, we're getting another Angry Birds movie because the first one was so successful. Franchises and kids movies are able to build off of themselves because they're, they're allowing for more creativity to happen. Whereas in, in, in the rest of Hollywood, in the live action portion of things... They are more. They so much. Of, so filmmaking has become so expensive that they have to ultimately rely on what they know will make money, and not. And unfortunately, that means new IPs don't get the day in the sun like they did back in the seventies and eighties. Like the, all the eighties franchises that we have were built from a time when creators, creators working through the Hollywood system. After the fallout from the heyday of the directors having control over the over the films and being art, art, more artistic, kind of fell through with bombs like Heaven's Gate. Uh, there and there are plenty of think think pieces and books about the that whole that whole era coming to a to a crashing halt. But basically, the studio system using directors to create new ideas has become less and less prevalent the more and more corporatized Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood's always been business-related, and there have always been businesses. It wasn't until the deregulation, the deregulation under Reagan that corporations became the main driving force. That's why we have an, olig- we have, we have an oligarchical economy, essentially. Outside of maybe independent businesses and apps and whatnot... Every main company you know is probably owned by one of the one of like 10 major corporations. And I think that's what ultimately ki- may have killed the in, the idea of new ideas in Hollywood. Well, the new the generation of new content from Hollywood because under corporations the drive is is never to create a new idea. It's always to as always to study the marketplace, see what makes money, and then always do that. That's why so many people have been complaining that Holly, that there's everything's so formulaic, everything is so boring now because it's run by the corporate model. And I would not I can't argue with that because it is. Because that is what it's like. And the only way to kind of return to the heyday of of say this Maybe not the 70s where the directors are in charge again because that fell out from the entire crumpling of the the studio system as we knew it. And unless, unless a massive blow to the Hollywood economy happens where the corporations are basically all, – all fall on top of themselves because of, because of something they did, which is e- very easily possible. Bubbles burst all the time. And that bubble is definitely getting ready to burst soon, sooner rather than later. And when that happens, that's the only time I could see a real push for new content rather than the same model going over and over again. It's hard to say, though. You can't predict these things. It You can never predict what's going to happen. You just have to f- follow the patterns, see what's going on, and... And you can have an idea and get ready for something to happen, but some th- things will happen out of the blue b- b- when you don't have any idea of what's coming, you know. And th- 
the only way I can truly see a return to new content, new IPs, new new movies that aren't within the same franchise, same like 100 franchises being remade over and over again. The only way I can see an end to that is to do some corporation busting. You know how you know how uh, they did that. They did monopoly busting back in the days of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. If politicians had the balls to actually but break down all the corporations and say, "Nah, companies can't. You can't have corporations owning a hundred companies. One company, one one company owns itself. Nobody owns any anything else unless they do complete busting down of the system as we know it and break down the idea of ol- ol- oligarchical pluto- plutocratic. I'm using these words like, like I think I know, like I act like I know them. I think oligarchical works." Because that's uh, meaning to to rule or to commit a form of power structure in which power rests with a small number of people, in this case corporations. Yeah, that's fine. Where's the plutocrat come from, though? Plutocracy. A society ruled and controlled by people of great... Same thing! Same thing when, when you apply it to corporations. Oligarchy means there's a small number of people in charge. Plutocracy is when it's about the wealth. People with massive, massive wealth. And that's always kind of been the case where plutocracy, where so many of our society has always kind of been a plutocratic one. Um, especially in, in the last 200, 300 years. But... Yeah, I mean... I, yeah, I'm getting a bit out of my depth here, but the point I'm trying to make is corporations in charge of in terms of Hollywood and corporations, it's oligarchical and plutocratic, very clearly. And if you want to get a, get rid of the corporate oligarchy that is controlling creative content in Hollywood, you have to bust the we we need to bust the whole thing. Get rid of all the. Ten corporations that run that run all of the companies that that make everything that we that we consume and bust it all down and just destroy the system. Oi, yeah, this is getting all all kinds of Marxist revolutionary. All of a sudden, did not expect this to come about, but here we yeah once again here we are. So yeah, uh, the. That's my that's my biggest proposal for how to get more new ideas and new IPs into Hollywood. Destroy the system. Seize the means of film production. <laughs> uh, communist Hollywood. I the people. I mean, hell, conservatives have called it communist Hollywood for 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 almost a century. Let's make it literal. Let's make it literal. The filmmakers own the means of film production. Seize the means of film production, my brothers and sisters. <laughs> Oh lordy, but yeah, um, yeah. I think the biggest problem is the old ideas are still making enough money that the new ones can't get any traction. But the only way to see new ideas come into co- come into fruition and become those new those new franchises that we all return to, we need to have them. Be allowed to to bloom and blossom, but if all the resources are going to the same old tree, 
Like, if there's an old tree that's managed to sustain itself and you continue to give the resources to that tree instead of allowing for new trees to grow, your force is going to be sparse and unhealthy. Thankfully, we are seeing new... I did think of a new franchise uh, that wasn't a kid's movie that's been given time to bloom, but it's mainly because it's been an independent production, and that's John Wick. We're three entries into John Wick. John Wick is becoming its own franchise, but the only reason it's been allowed to do that is because it's an independent franchise with with the, a lot of the power being held by the by the two guys who created it now being run by the one guy who created it by one of the guy well, the two guys who created it so that it's more likely to happen in independent circles smaller companies smaller IPs trying to build a name for themselves Oddly enough, Netflix has yet to build a true franchise of movies. That it like they've got the Netflix Marvel stuff, but there isn't really like a Netflix created IP that's been that has like five entries and you know its own spinoff series and stuff like that. I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. Like if Netflix could get an actual like franchise on its hands. They, it might be. It might. It, it might actually come off as a much more, you know, legitimate studio in the eyes of at least business businesses, you know, businessmen and women and the people who make people on that side of things. It's like, hey, Netflix is able to create an actual franchise instead of just continually pumping out content. But at the same point, their model is just pump out as much content, see what sticks, and to just pump out, always, never stop pumping out content. No matter how much in debt we get. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll... It's hard to say, but yeah, people get sick of stuff. And ideas die and things don't make as much money. And you try to reboot something and people won't uh, go for it. Because you're not bringing anything that they want to the table anymore. And people are fickle. That's the other thing. That's the other problem too. Is that people will think they want something. But studies have shown that... They are just as easily manipulated into thinking what they want where uh, and not being honest with what they really want because their money is what says what says what they really want and like there's a spaghetti study spaghetti sauce study and there was like a coffee study of like trying to understand the mind of somebody of a consumer and like they'll say oh I like this kind of coffee when really they actually like this kind of coffee but they if they they are they trick themselves into thinking, well, I must like this kind of coffee because that's what makes me this kind of person. When in reality, they buy this kind of coffee, but they aren't honest about it. So data is manipulated by the, by people's own uh, insecurities and, and dishonesty. And that spaghetti sauce thing was people studying the buying patterns of people with spaghetti sauce and the only way, and people thought, oh, you only need the one type of spaghetti sauce. And I think it was like Ragu or some, one of those companies was like, what if we make the, a, a couple different kinds of spaghetti sauce? And he saw, and they saw people were buying these new types of spaghetti sauce because people wanted them, but all oh, the market research told them that they like this kind. And so we must make this kind. And people, I, and it's just basically that people, are not honest with themselves when it comes to what they like. Some people are just like, I don't want to tell people I like this kind of thing, so I have to tell them I like the accepted kind of thing. 
And that's why data always gets screwed on what consumers actually want because the only way you truly find that out is what they spend their money on. This has been a really wild discussion, I think. (laughs) I did not expect it to go full-on Marxist uh, halfway through. Uh, But, you know, that's where we are. Uh, So, yeah, ending a series is not impossible if it's successful. But... Ultimately, if as long as a creator has some level of control over their creation, they can find a means to end it. Whether it's a good ending or not is always up for debate, but you know, the only way to see an end to a franchise is to have somebody in charge who is willing to end it when it's time to end it and sees that its that its usefulness has outlived itself. It's outlived its usefulness and it's basically become a relic and it's time for it to end and give way for new stuff. So, yeah. Well then, uh, let's move on from the discussion uh, on to the rest of the show, shall we? And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. All right, looking at the box office report, we've had a bit of a shakeup. A bunch of stuff dropped out of the top seven. Uh, Happy Death Day to You, What Men Want, and even our new premiere, uh, Greta, only made four and a half million dollars this weekend. And couldn't even bust the top seven. So, uh, so this weekend, uh, number seven was Isn't It Romantic? Making $4.6 million at the box office. Bringing its domestic total up to $40.2 million. Also, it turns out that Lindsay Ellis, uh, her likeness was used without uh, permission. In that movie by uh, stealing the gif of her with the hot dogs from back when she was the nostalgia chick. And uh, they never paid for her likeness. So, that's... So, so yeah. Thanks, movie. You're a dick. Uh, Anyway. At $40 million... uh, Isn't it romantic? There we are. I have to go to Wikipedia for these budgets since they won't show up. Uh, So, yeah. It made back its budget... Without a problem uh, now, but I don't think it's still it's that much of a runaway success either. It's still not doing super great, but at least it made back its budget, uh, so it's not a complete flop either. Uh, that dropped down from a five to seven this week, uh, and then uh, dropping down from four to six is the is WWE's Pages uh, biopic "Fighting with My Family," which. Brought in uh, four point six million dollars as well. Four point like th- a difference of fifty thousand dollars between isn't it romantic and fighting with my family? Uh, but so but uh, four point six million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to fourteen point nine million dollars, and with a budget of eleven million dollars, and apparently it made an extra seventeen point six. Where are they getting that number? Huh. That one's also not is in the is in a similar boat where it's not making bank, but it's at least not a flop. So uh, it may it may it may yet make back some of that money uh, by the end of its run, but so far it's just kind of chugging along, not doing too much. Uh, jumping up from number eleven to number five after its wholly undeserved Academy Award win is Green Book. This weekend brought in four point seven million dollars. Bringing its domestic gross up to seventy-five point nine, and its worldwide gross up to one eighty-eight 
million dollars. Holy, holy, undeserved, completely overrated. Anyway, dropping down from three to four is the Lego Movie Two, the second part, bringing in six point six million dollars, making its domestic box making its domestic gross ninety one point six million dollars, and its worldwide gross one hundred fifty two point seven million dollars. Still not as performing, not performing as well. As the other ones. Doing better than uh, the Ninjago movie, which, you know, at least it's got that going for it. But still not being, still not as successful as the the first one or Lego Batman. It's still got a ways to go before it gets to there. And we'll see if it ever gets to there before it leaves theaters. But yeah, people were not as into this one. More than Ninjago, not so much into this. Um... Dropping from two to three is the Little Battle Angel, bringing in $7 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $72 million, and its worldwide gross up to $350.4 million. Thank you, Japan and China, for for saving this movie, making it not a failure. At least it broke even. So, yeah, Little Battle Angel broke even. It's not a full-on failure. Hey, it might even be successful enough to warrant a sequel. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Uh, and then premiering at number two uh, this weekend was Tyler Perry's Medea Family Funeral, which brought in $27 million and no budget listed on Box Office Mojo. So we have to go to Wikipedia. Uh, Medea Family Funeral. There we are. Box budget for this one not listed on Wikipedia. Fine. Let's try IMDb. Communications in detail. Oh good. Just just no information on it at all. Fine. Hold on. I'm going to go back to something else, something similar in the franchise. Medea. None of the Halloween. Medea's Tough Love. That was an animated movie. Christmas. Witness Protection. Big Happy Family. I Could Do Bad All By Myself. That was Medea? Huh. Um, Medea Goes to Jail. Let's try Big Happy Family. How much did that cost to make? $25 million. And then let's take a look at Christmas. It's definitely more expensive than the Halloween specials. $25 million to make the Christmas one. So I'm guessing about the same for Medea Family Funeral. And it brought in $27 million. So at least it made back its budget opening weekend. And uh, if it can double it by the end of its run, it'll it'll end up being some at least somewhat successful entry in the franchise. Not as successful as the Halloween ones, which were done super, super cheap. But... It's just nice to end on. And then staying at number one this weekend uh, is How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, which brought in $30 million and brought its domestic total up to $97.6 million and its worldwide gross up to $375 million. Speaking of how to end a franchise, <laughs> uh, this is I just hope DreamWorks doesn't bu- uh, bungle it like Disney did with Toy Story. But uh, yeah, this is well over twice its budget and... It's just proven that people love this franchise and they wanted to see a good movie. It's got it's got good word of mouth, good ratings, and it's got and it's a it's best movie so far of the year. So yeah, How to Train Your Dragon: The Hidden World still number one at least for now because 
Now we take a look to the week ahead in Trailer Talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. How to Train Your Dragon's two-week run is coming to an end, as this week's new release is only one. Only the one. And it's on my uh, third year anniversary as well, so we'll have to to focus more on that next time. But the new release this week is Captain Marvel from Marvel Studios. The next entry in the MCU and the lead-up to Avengers Endgame. So let's take a look at the trailer. I never thought I would see the scrolls. Noble warrior heroes. In 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 on film. They were always tied to the Fantastic Four and those movies sucked, so they never got the chance to be showcased. I want to see what the how they did the scroll look. The, their, how did their scroll they designed the scrolls to look in live action. We made you one of us. So you could live longer, stronger, superior. I keep having these memories. Something in my past is the key to all of this. You know how to fly this thing? We'll see. That's a yes or no question. God, he looks like he looks like he walked straight off the set of uh, Diet Art with a Vengeance. Okay, there okay, yeah, there it is the scroll. Had a life here. What are you telling me? Everything begins. But you're not as strong as you think. Okay, with her, a hero. Nice. This war is just the beginning. I'm not gonna fight your war. I'm gonna end it. Ah yeah, I love it! So badass! Captain Marvel. He's a kitty! Apparently that is a character within the comics. Goose the Cat is uh, Carol Danvers' pet cat in the comics. Uh, I don't know what the deal with it is, but it's in the movie and it's canon. It's literal Marvel canon. Also, Samuel L. Jackson is never too badass to pet a kitty. So, keep that in mind. Uh, I'm pumped. I also think it's hilarious that it took Captain Marvel for Rotten Tomatoes to amend its audience score to only allow for uh, audience ratings once the movie's released and no pre-release ratings bombing because so many neckbeards are pissed at this movie for literally no reason let's let's like it's pissed that it's a female-centric superhero movie and it looks badass and they're pissed because it exists they were the same people that were pissed at wonder woman too there's a great comic that's been making the rounds 
of like all the super of all the of like it started with the Ghostbusters uh, remake and then Ray and then Wonder Woman and then there was something else and now it's Captain Marvel and it's like these badass superhero uh, protagonists uh, super you know female women protagonist female women as opposed to you know non female women but anyway these fe- these these lead badass women in in comic books and superheroes and whatnot they're all getting their day in the sun and then it's all building up and now we get captain marvel finally being the first Mar- uh, female led marvel movie and it's and it looks amazing and I, and I can't wait to see how it plays out uh yeah i'm interested to see how the the, the scrolls look solid solid makeup uh um they i was more familiar with Marvel, uh, the original Captain Marvel here, played by Jude Law from uh, the Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes animated s- series, where he was much more like a love interest for Carol. I think they, I think they did date back in the day before, and that's kind of where she got the powers. And here they've made it so that they may be like initial love interest, but that's much more, um, much more caustic, much more toxic. Uh, and I think that's an interesting choice to make, to make sort of, to play off the fact that she, what what sounded like tough love was really just um, Marvell looking down on uh, her for being human. And it, she realizing that, you know, they made her a weapon and they made her a Kree soldier against her will. And she wants to be her own woman against sort of a story of independence from from the people who have been holding you down, it sounds like. So I can't, I can't wait to see it play out. I'm so excited. Come Thursday, I'm going to be seeing this, baby. And that'll be the only new release for next week. And that'll lead into our third anniversary. Three years I've been doing this. And nobody listens. Well, like, ten, all tens of you who actually listen to this. Anyway, that about does it for this week. Which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by favoriting us on your web browser and whitelisting us on your ad blocker. And all the new releases will come out every Monday. Hopefully every Monday. You know, uh, real world stuff not withstand mm, hiccups. But, it's, you know, it, ideally we should be out every Monday. And uh, you can also check out all of our other fine programming. Uh, we had a we we're getting ready for the next Living in the Stacks episode to come out. And uh, so if you want to if you want to prepare for that, uh, we read Chinua Chebe's Things Fall Apart. Uh, so that'll come out uh, sometime next week. And then you can also check out all Donna stuff at Snarkcast, the uh, Beyond the Cabin of the Woods, Once More Feeling, Family Business, all of that stuff. Uh, I believe Vanessa is still doing Odd Vegas, her uh, podcast about working in the Las Vegas Oddity Shop. And uh, if you yourself are a podcaster uh, and would like to rejoin us and would like to join our fine network and help it out and help it grow and ha- join our little family, you can do so by sending emails to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you and see if you're a good fit. Uh, otherwise, you can also check out, uh, if you don't want to use your web browser, you can check us out on your mobile devices. We're available through all the various app provide, uh, podcast providers, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, iHeartMedia. I'm still going to look into Podbean as another outlet down the line, but for right now, uh, that's out of the question. 
And I've got some other stuff in the works that I'm going to announce uh, next week. So uh, stay tuned for that. And um, yeah, so if you've listened to us through your mobile device, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and let people know that you like the show and they should check it out as well. You can also do so by sharing us on your various social media. Social media home for Popcorn Junkie is Facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie. Twitter.com at, uh, slash Corn Junkie Pod. Fa- Instagram.com slash Popcorn Junkie Podcast. And we're on uh, Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. And if you want to join us there, we're having a lot of fun. You should too. Uh, and then if you want to send anything else, send, what do you think of Medea? What did you think of Greta? What do you think of my thoughts on... Uh, on uh, literal communist Hollywood, uh, and uh, ho- and your thoughts on franchises that ended poorly, ended well, you know the idea of ending franchises at all. Send any of your thoughts to uh, popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail dot com. I've, I've been neglecting this as well, but if you have the ability to, you could donate as little as a dollar a month to Patreon and help me out there, and then uh, and gain access to the library that's been built that was built up there, and hopefully add on to it with more content. Uh, that's what I want to do with Podbean as well. But for patreon.com slash popcorn junkie, you can support me there. And uh, if you can get, if we can get that going with enough patrons, I can include another segment on here uh, devoted to reviews from them for, well, from them for them, uh, whatever the case may be. Uh, so, but the only way to do that is if people go out and support the Patreon. So patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. And, uh, yeah, be, and then send all the stuff to Gumby Cat, uh, not Gumby Cat Network, but uh, popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and we're about to hit three years of this of this crap. Uh, this is actually the longest running thing I've done. My, I couldn't even handle making video reviews as, a, as the nostalgia critic knockoff this long. So, take that as you will. theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. its own internal drama from, you know, like, in, uh, not incest, goddammit. <laughs>